Well, friends, as, let me begin by saying, as Christians, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to be, we must be, a people of the Word, a people of the Bible. As Christians, we must be a people of the Bible. This is the last Sunday of the year, the last Lord's Day of 2019. And it's a, it's a time of the year that it is natural for us to be considering what has happened and, and thinking about what's to come, considering the last calendar year, uh, anticipating what's going to happen in this next year, 2020. The roaring 20s are back again. Right? And I think it's an especially good time of the year for us to be considering, as we consider ourselves in our lives, to be considering what our relationship is with the Scriptures. For, for many years at All Nations Church, this last Sunday of the year, we dedicated to, to giving attention to the Word of God and its place in our lives. And uh, you probably noticed in the service already that has been a theme that we've been hitting on today. You do know, by the way, that the, the readings that we do as a church are not just chosen randomly. The songs that we sing, they are chosen for a reason. And you've probably noticed as we've read Psalm 19, as we've read and confessed Deuteronomy chapter 6, we've praised God for His Word. We've confessed that we've not given enough attention. We've asked Him to send forth His Word again. And now we're going to give our attention to His Word, particularly in, in the first psalm, in the first, the first three verses, but really all of, all of Psalm 1. Uh, I'm going to read Psalm 1 in its entirety. I would ask you to please stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. When I've finished reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and we're going to respond together. Thanks be to God. Psalm 1. The Holy Spirit says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, friends, as we consider the Scriptures and our relationship to them this morning and the place of the Bible and the life of God's people, uh, it may seem odd that we turn our attention to the Psalms, but it is very appropriate that we turn our attention to the Psalms. As you know, the book of Psalms, this sometimes referred to as the Psalter, this collection of poems and songs and prayers. It falls into the category of Old Testament literature, the genre that is sometimes referred to as wisdom literature. Along with Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs. 
It is a poetic expression of what the Bible calls wisdom. And it's important that we remember that what the Bible calls wisdom, what the Bible refers to as wisdom, is not an accumulation of knowledge. Being wise in a biblical sense is not about knowing everything. But rather, being wise in a biblical sense is about, is about living rightly in the presence of the real living God. It is about conducting oneself appropriately in his world and under his rule. And the Psalms are a, from the start to the finish, they're a, a poetic expression on a variety of levels of what the Bible calls wisdom, of what it is to walk rightly before God, to acknowledge the presence of the living God and to honor him. The first Psalm, Psalm 1, uh, has been referred to as sort of a gateway to the Psalms. It is sort of an overture that lays out uh, the, the principles of wisdom that are going to be extrapolated upon in Psalm after Psalm, all the way to 150. Uh, Charles Spurgeon referred to Psalm 1 as the text on which all the other Psalms are a sermon preached. The text of Psalm 1 is, is simple. It's only six verses. Uh, but in its simplicity, it is very profound. And it lays before us in profound simplicity uh, two ways to live. It argues that there are essentially two paths to take in one's life. And this is a common biblical theme uh, from, from the, the law, from the Pentateuch, from Deuteronomy, all the way to the book of Revelation, we find this picture, this paradigm of two, two paths set before people made in God's image. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke of it often in his earthly ministry. You remember in Matthew chapter 7, he piled up image after image. of the. There's the, the broad way and the narrow way. There's the, the tree that gives good fruit and the tree that gives bad fruit. There's the house built with the foundation on the sand and the house built with the foundation on the rock. And here, that same paradigm of the two ways is presented, as I said, as sort of an overture to all of the Psalter. There are really two sorts of persons. The one who has regard for the word of God and the one who does not. And at the end of the day, it is really that simple. What I intend for us to do this morning is to, to look at this psalm, really particularly verses 1, 2, and 3, and then to identify uh, a principle and apply that principle. And then I want to make a final note in closing. But that's our outline this morning. If you look at Psalm 1, the first verse of the first psalm, the first word of that first verse is that word blessed. Blessed is the man or blessed is the one. Now blessed here carries with it the sense of being favored, of being happy, of having blessings, gifts multiplied on someone. And I think it is significant to note that this first word of the first verse of the first psalm is blessed. Because I want to remind you, friends, as we consider God's word together, it is God's purpose to bless us. It is his purpose to bless his people. 
It is his purpose to do good to his people, that we might be those who are favored and blessed. All of creation is made to enjoy his glory and his grace. And it is the purpose of our God in giving us his word that we might be blessed. Not that we might be scolded and shamed and beaten up, but ultimately so that we might know him and the blessing of knowing him. Blessed is the man, blessed is the one, is how the psalm begins. But then, immediately the psalmist turns and confronts us with a negative image, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, it may be surprising that at the very beginning of pronouncing blessing, there is a a negative image like that one, what you're not to do, but it is also very significant, I think. All, all meaningful affirmations require a denial, don't they? To say what is good, one must also be willing to say what is bad. That sounds very simple, but in the age that we're living in, I think it's important that we acknowledge it. Uh, when we are being tempted and even pressured to affirm everything and deny nothing and to be treated, to be, to be thought of as, as cruel or harsh or excessively negative to give any kind of a denial. It's significant that the psalmist begins here with a denial. There is something that one who is blessed does not do and that is that he or she does not put his or her confidence in the wisdom of the world doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, when I say this person does not put their confidence in the wisdom of the world, I do want to remind you again of the biblical understanding of wisdom, what wisdom means in a biblical sense. It is not a body of knowledge that is being referred to. When I say the wisdom of the world, I'm not referring to science or mathematics or anything like that, I'm thinking in terms of ethics and morality. How one is to live and to conduct themselves in this life. Blessed is the one who does not follow the guidance of the world in this regard. Now here, this idea is depicted pretty vividly uh, in this traditional style of Hebrew poetry, these parallels. Here we have a triple parallel. They're standing there's walking, standing, and sitting in the council, the way, the seat of the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. What's being referred to here, what's being pictured, is the person who chooses to give their attention to devote themselves to the ways of a godless world, to adopt their mode of thinking and living, to align themselves in that way with the world's wisdom. A lot of commentators and Christians over the centuries have seen a sort of progression here from walking to standing to sitting, from the council, the way, the seat, the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers, uh, someone who is, is progressing in their, their abandon of God and his ways and devoting themselves to the ways of the world. Whether there is a progression here or not, it's very clear that the psalmist is saying, blessed is the one who does not go that way. Now, when we talk about 
walking in the counsel of the wicked, when we talk about devoting ourselves, aligning ourselves with the wisdom of the world, worldliness in that way, when we read this, it's easy for us to imagine something very overt. You're imagining, maybe even in a cartoonish kind of way, someone who's, who's drawn to destructive company. Someone who subjects themselves to bad influences and, and makes bad choices. Maybe somebody who hangs around people who've got tattoos. <laughs> something, something like that. You know. Now the reality of the wisdom of the world is that it is much more subtle than that. The folly of the world does not get presented as folly, but rather it gets presented as wisdom. It appears to be wise. Worldly wisdom, friends, is not just a matter of, of doing drugs or gambling or engaging in criminal behavior or something like that. It is the wisdom of the world to put our trust in our money and in our own strength, to trust those things to keep us and to sustain us through the trials that are coming. It is the wisdom of the world to medicate the pain of living in a fallen world with the pleasures of the flesh rather than consider our souls and eternal life. It is the wisdom of the world to look out for ourselves and put ourselves first rather than be willing to sacrifice for anyone or anything. It is the wisdom of the world to be vengeful and to carry a grudge and to harden the heart rather than to forgive. It is the value of the material, of what is comfortable, of what is temporary. It's the value of the individual the value of the self above all else that ultimately is the wisdom of the world. And friends, I don't have to tell you, that wisdom is everywhere. It's on television. It's at the movie theater. It's on the radio. It's on the podcast that you listen to. It's in the news. It's on the billboards. We are bombarded with it everywhere. And that wisdom... It is difficult to identify for that reason because it is ubiquitous, because it is very much in the air that we breathe and have been breathing since we were born. But it is especially subtle and difficult to identify because oftentimes our own internal discernment confirms it. Our own natural sense of right and wrong agrees with the wisdom of the world. I mean, remember, friends, according to the Scriptures, we are part of the world ourselves. We're not a neutral party that it gets impressions from this side and that side. But we, the way the Lord Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 15, it is out of the heart that come wicked, de wicked deeds and evil desires. What defiles a person is not just what comes from outside, but what comes from inside. Our own hearts, our own sense of common sense can lead us astray. Sometimes the counsel of the wicked comes in the form of my own voice and the desires of my own heart, doesn't it? I mean, does your, does your experience confirm that? That is what the Scriptures say. But has that been your experience in life? It has been mine. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, rel I'm a relatively young man depending on who you're talking to in this room. 
But I can tell you, friends, I, I have lived enough of life to be able to look back on the life that I have lived, and I am shocked by the things that I can justify, the decisions that I have made that I convinced myself were good decisions, the things that I was convinced were wise, and they were not. My capacity for self-deception is shamefully high. And I think probably many of you would, would see in your own lives the same pattern. You are not a neutral party. You are part of the problem in that regard. Now, with that in mind, Psalm 1 paints a pretty bleak picture here, doesn't it? Yes, blessed is the one who forsakes the folly that the world calls wisdom. But when the voices of deception are so subtle and they are everywhere around us and we've been born and bred and raised in it and even, even your own heart and mind contributes to those voices, well, how on earth can a person walk not, stand not, sit not in counsel like that? Well, thankfully, uh, Psalm 1 verse 1 is not the end of the psalm. It's not the end of the psalms. There is a way. There is a path that is trustworthy. There is a voice that can be relied upon to speak the truth always. And friends, that is the voice of God. Psalm 1 verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the one who has forsaken the folly of the world and has instead chosen to listen to the counsel of God, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, when the psalmist uses the word law there, I know many of you are aware of this, he is not simply referring to, to the Ten Commandments or the Mosaic law. He is referring to the Scriptures, the truth of God spoken and recorded in his word. The psalmist is referring to the, to the Torah. David is talking about the, the beginning of the Old Testament at this point. But friends, we, we have it all, don't we? We have the completed canon of Scripture, the very words of God written for us. That's what's being referred to here as the law of the Lord. The very words of the living God given by God through the medium of human authors, every word of it in the original language, in the original articles, inspired by God, inerrant, and fully sufficient for all that we need. Now, I've mentioned this to you before, but I'll mention it again just because I, I don't usually uh, give responses to what you might see on YouTube, <laughs> but... But evidently, there is a very common uh, uh, misunderstanding right now that, that the Bible that we have in English is a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation that many, many generations and empires have risen and fallen, and the real meaning of God's Word, whatever it was in the beginning, has long since been lost in this process of unending translations. That is not accurate. You, you can go to... You can go to the bookstore and buy copies of the Greek New Testament. 
very faithful compilations of the original articles. And what we have translated into the English is a very faithful translation that communicates very clearly and accurately what the original articles inspired word by word actually say. This book is trustworthy, is my point. And that's significant, especially in light of what I was just saying about the world that we're living in and our own hearts and the deceptive quality in them, because here is a trustworthy way. In the fog of worldly wisdom and our inability to discern and and even to trust in ourselves, here is a lifeline, the Word of God revealed, transmission from outside the fog given to us. The reformers referred to the scriptures as, as sort, of like, sort of like glasses that one could put on and suddenly all of the world comes into focus. John Calvin referred to the scriptures as a sort of golden thread that, that, is, that we can follow out of the labyrinth of human confusion. He imagined us all in a maze and we, we turn this way, worldly philosophy, this, that, our own inclinations, they turn us down this pathway, this pathway, they're all dead ends. But what God has given us, his word, is like this thread through the maze. And if we cling to it and hold on to it and walk by, step by step in accordance with it, we find ourselves uh, on the path of righteousness. That's the way the reformers saw it and described it. Blessed is the one who puts his confidence here, who puts his trust and his attention here in what God has said. And not only his confidence, but he delights in it. Counts it as precious, counts it as of all surpassing value. And friends, again, in light of what we've been discussing, it's not hard to understand why it would be counted as so valuable. Why Blessed truth in the midst of a world of lies would be so valuable. Why a light in the midst of darkness would be precious to us. Why a rock in the midst of stormy seas that we can put our feet on would be treasured by us. C.S. Lewis uh, in and comments on Psalm 19 that our brother read at the beginning of the service when he talks about the sweetness of the word. Lewis says, sweetness is kind of a, kind of some of the, the impact of the word sweetness is lost on us because we live in such a sugary society. We got plenty of sugar everywhere. You know, honey from the honeycomb does not seem like something special necessarily. Lewis said the, the, the impact of the words there might be better understood if we think of it as that precious sanity that comes after wakening from a nightmare. The breath of fresh air, oh, this is what reality is. That's what the psalmist is saying about the word. So I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, Christians, have you forgotten what this book is? We talk about it all the time. We read it all the time. It's easy to forget what it really is. Have you begun to treat this book as if it is something dull? Have you begun to treat it as if it's something that you already know? Have you begun to treat its study as if it is a chore, as if it is something mundane? It's easy to do so. I find myself doing that. Friends, if you find yourself in that place, repent. 
go back and remember what it is that we have here. Remember that these are the very words of the living God. This is the golden thread in the dark labyrinth of human folly. And treasure this word for what it is. The one who is blessed, the psalmist said, treasures this word, delights in it. And not only does he delight in it, does he value it, but he meditates on it day and night. He studies it. He considers it. He chews on it and pours over it again and again, day and night, year after year. The one who is blessed does not just skim over it. He doesn't just attend Sunday services where it's read out loud or, or reads it once and then puts it away as if we already know everything that it says. But rather we become as students of it. We cling to it. We very deliberately set our minds upon it and fix our thoughts on it until the truth of it weighs on us and begins to sink in and do its work of transformation in us. Romans chapter 12, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. My experience, friends, and probably many of you would agree, is that the delight in and meditation on the Bible are complementary and mutually progressive. The more I study and meditate on the Scriptures, the more I delight in the Scriptures because what I find in the Scriptures is really amazing. It's wonderful. It's of unparalleled value. I find myself around this time of year having difficult family interactions. Does anyone else have difficult family interactions around Thanksgiving and Christmas? You know, and I find myself looking around, and the problem's not other people. The problem is me. How do you solve a problem like that? Well, in a context like that, something simple like what James says in chapter 1, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Oh, that's like a breath of fresh air. There's something wonderful for me to fix my thoughts on. There's something precious for me to cling to in the midst of the storm. The more I study the Scriptures, the more I meditate on it, the more I see the wisdom of it, the more it feels like the Bible is reading me the more I delight in it, and friends, the more I delight in it, the more it is my desire to study it and to meditate on it and to know it and be shaped by it, the more precious it becomes. That is an unending progression. It doesn't matter how long you have lived, how long you've been in Christ, how many times you've read the Bible, you are not a master of the Bible. Grace Church has a long legacy of Bible study of being Bible scholars in that way. But I hope nobody here imagines yourself to be a master of the Bible. Be a student of the Bible. Be someone who is instructed by it. Blessed is the one who chooses this way, to not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. That person, verse 3 says, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. Spiritually speaking, that person is alive. 
with roots that go deep to where fresh water is flowing. There is life there. In trial, in blessing, there is fruitfulness there. There is real life, the kind of life that grows slowly but with strength like a tree. That person is alive. Now, we could go on with the psalm for the sake of time. I want to get I want to stop there and get to the principle. And the principle I articulated it at the beginning, and I've been making the case all along, and forgive me for being repetitive, but we as Christians are to be a people of the Bible. At the core of our identity as Christians, as God's people, as the church, is the Scriptures. Our affection for them, our commitment to them, our study of them, our belief that they are true. We're to be Bible people. The church is to be a pillar. It is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Some of you all, I think I've shared this before at All Nations Church, some of, some of you, you know, a, a few years ago, through some very strange providence, I was asked to participate in an ecumenical panel discussion of religion that the city of Roanoke was having for its employees. As part of their uh, desire to enrich the lives of their employees. They, they had a number of faith leaders from the community come together and sit on a panel and discuss our, our various religions. And through some very strange providence, I find myself invited as a representative of evangelical Protestantism, which I'm guessing a whole lot of evangelical Protestants in the Roanoke Valley would not have thought of me as their representative, but yet there I was. And in this panel discussion that we had before a bunch of city employees, one of the questions that was asked is, what defines your faith tradition as unique? What is it that defines your religion and sets it apart from the others here on the stage? Now, a few seats down from me was a rabbi, and the rabbi said, tradition is what defines us. We are the religion of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob the oldest form of monotheism on the earth. The Catholic priest sitting next to him said, what defines us is unity. We are the one true church. We are not divided up into a bunch of sects and denominations. We are the one church with the one head, and all over the world we are one body. The liberal Protestant man sitting next to me, he said, what defines us is love because we welcome all and receive all and make no distinctions. And then it was my turn. And what I said in that moment is what defines us is the Bible. We believe that it's true, all of it. That's our authority. We teach it. We seek to obey it. It is the Scriptures, above tradition above the organization of the church, above the way we conduct ourselves institutionally. It is the Bible that defines us and sets us apart as unique. And that is, friends, because we believe that Psalm 1 is true. And that means, brothers and sisters, that if Grace Church is to be a healthy church, is to be a living church, spiritually speaking. We have got to be a congregation devoted to the Bible. More so than our tradition, more so than our sense of institutional unity, 
or our organizational principles. We've got to be committed to the Bible, to hearing it, to reading it, to ever pressing forward in our knowledge of it, our understanding of it, our devotion to it. If we would be like a tree planted by streams of water for another 70 years, we must make the law of God our delight and meditate on it day and night. As in every generation, there is a great turning in our time away from the scriptures, even in the church. The wisdom of the world, the data-driven methods and philosophies of church growth that are borrowed from the business world and from other, they all, they all produce results in the short term. But in the long term, they come to nothing. And we have got to be careful, as we've been careful in every decade before 2020, we've got to be careful that we not put our hope in those things and walk in the counsel of the world, but rather delight in the scriptures and meditate on them day and night. We must, as a church, be a people of the word. We must make sure that we have elders who love and know the Bible. We must make sure that there are teachers in our Sunday school and our Bible studies that cherish the scriptures and uphold them and don't just talk about the way that they think life should be lived. We've got to be a church that prays for our leaders in that regard, that prays for the education committee at this church in that regard, that they would love the scriptures and then, friends, we've got to be a people that avail ourselves of every means of grace in that regard that we have here in the church. A people that listen to the word as it's preached and taught. A people who serve in that capacity. I don't want to put too fine a point on it here, but I think probably you would agree with me if I said a church that understands the value of the word of God should not have to badger people to teach Sunday school or a tent, a church that values the word of the living God should not have to plead with people to teach our children scripture memory because we collectively are a people of the word. You see what I'm saying? But friends, even as, as we must be a people of the word together as a church, we must also be a people of the word as individuals. We must be people instructed by the word of God, shaped by the word of God, not only when we come together, but every day. And to do that, again, not to put too fine a point on things, we've got to be people that pick up the Bible and read it. That probably goes without saying, but let me say it. We've got to be people that read the Bible. I think that it's good, in so much as we're able, for us to be reading the whole Bible every year if we can, that is not an, an impossible task. It takes 70 hours to read the Bible out loud at a, at a regular reading pace like that. That's 12 minutes a day. That's three chapters a day and four on Sunday. Out on the table out there in the foyer, there are a whole lot of Bible reading plans that have been printed up and put out there. Some of them you read through the whole Bible in a year. Some you read through in a couple of years. Some you read through the Bible twice in a year. There's all kinds of options out there. I suggest to you, if you don't have a plan for reading the scriptures this year, pick one up. January 1st is coming. It's a great time to get a plan, to start to read, if we're going to read the scriptures this year. Our brother John Carroll 
who's serving as the assistant pastor here, he's, he's written not one but two books specifically for the purpose of walking people through reading the Bible. They're out there on that table. They're in the back there. The one that he wrote before is $12. The one he wrote that came out this year is $13. If you can't afford that, talk to me. We'll figure something out. Figure out a way to be reading through the Scriptures this year. I, I want to I say this. I want to challenge you here. If you have never been a person for whom daily systematic Bible reading is a part of your life, if you've never read through the Bible, it's not a practice in your life right now, you might consider reading the New Testament this year. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament. If you read five a week, you read it in a year. If you read one chapter every morning, Monday through Friday, you start in Matthew chapter 1 next week, you'll be in Revelation by this time next year. You'll have read the whole New Testament. Do it if you haven't. I mean, si simply from a, from a secular perspective, it is one of the most significant works of literature in human history and has shaped the way that we live our lives. Read it. But especially those of us that claim Christ as our Savior and our Lord, friends, read it. Find some other friends and read it together. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you've not read the Bible, oh, consider reading it. Again, it does not take all that much of your time and your energy, but don't reject the claims that we are making as a church without having actually read them yourself. I'm not exaggerating when I say it is a matter of life and death. My appeal to you, brothers and sisters, this morning is that this next year, we collectively as a church and we as individuals renew our commitment to be a people of the Word of God. It is not the kind of thing that we read once and lay by the side. It's not the kind of thing that can be part of our DNA as a healthy church and then is forgotten and falls by the wayside. It must be something that we cling to and hold to year after year, generation after generation. If you want to talk through some specifics of how you might do that in your own life, talk to me, talk to one of the elders. This is something that we would love to talk to you about. And with that being said, though, let, let me make one final note here this morning. And this maybe is the most important thing that I can say, and it must be said after all the things that I've said so far. Reading the Bible does not make anyone a Christian. If you only knew Psalm 1, if that was all that you knew of the revelation of God, you might think what God is saying is that if I pick up his word and I give it my attention, then he will love me and he'll count me righteous, and that's the way that I'm to get myself in his good graces. Well, that is not the testimony of the Scriptures at all. The testimony of the Scriptures is that it is through faith in Jesus Christ alone that anyone is counted righteous. You can't read the Bible and love it enough to atone for your sins. That could never happen. Right? If you had 10,000 years to meditate on it day and night, you couldn't atone for your sins. It's Jesus Christ that atones for sins. And it's trust in him and his blood shed that makes anyone a Christian. Reading the Bible is not the medicine that will cure a soul lousy with the corruption of sin. The gospel is the medicine that saves souls lost in sin. Oh, friends, but the scriptures, this is good food to eat. 
This is good air to breathe. This is good water to drink, especially for those of us whose souls have been cured by the medicine of the gospel. Don't mistake this for the medicine. It's not that. Christ himself is. Oh, but friends, you trust in Christ. Don't neglect the word that he's given. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Let's, let's pray together now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the good gift of your word. We thank you for sustaining it and giving it to us. We thank you that it's so readily available to us that it's in all these pews we're sitting in. Oh, Lord, do forgive us for our inattention to such a precious gift. And oh, help us to turn. Help us to turn in faith. Help us to turn in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins and cherish your word. Do, do make us a people of your word. Transform us, we pray, by the renewing of our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.